This podcast is brought to you by Illuminate, the Lehigh Business Blog. To learn more, please visit us at business.lehigh.edu slash news. Welcome. I'm Jack Croft, host of the Illuminate podcast for Lehigh University's College of Business. Today is September 21st, 2022. And we're talking with Marina Puzakova about her research on humanizing brands, also known as anthropomorphism, in marketing and advertising for everything from destination travel to various products. Dr. Puzakova is an associate professor of marketing in Lehigh's College of Business, who holds the Allison and Norman H. Axelrod 74 Summer Research Fellowship. Her research interests are in branding strategies, brand anthropomorphism, and negative brand performance. Specifically, she examines consumers' attributions and brand inferences, consumer brand relationships, and the impact of different brand positioning strategies on performance and consumer responses to marketing communications. Thanks for being with us today, Marina. Jack, thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure. Let's start by um, talking about this term anthropomorphism, and let's um, define it. And if you could explain a little about how it relates generally to branding, marketing, and advertising, the, the things we'll be talking about today. Absolutely. So anthropomorphism is a very exciting phenomena, and um, it means very simple things. Basically, it means that people are prone to attributing different human-like traits and features to different types of non-human entities. Just to give you some simple examples, people can see faces in the clouds or they could see smiling cars or sometimes uh, in contrast, they can perceive a car as having an aggressive face, for example. People can talk to their pets or dogs or cats as uh, they are living entities. So anthropomorphism also is very popular branding and brand communication strategy. It also enhances uh, consumer perceptions of brands as human likes. And uh, marketers in general can use a variety of different means to humanize or anthropomorphize their brands or help consumers to see their marketplace offerings in human-like terms. For example, this human-like brand perception could be induced by enlisting anthropomorph- anthropomorphic brand characters. And some example, very famous examples, Joe Camel or Michelin Man. Uh, sometimes marketers can humanize um, product depictions. Uh, their products like California raisins are humanized, M&M candies, mm-hmm. or even represent the product as exhibiting human-like actions. One example is a parquet talking top. Uh, or sometimes even a product can adopt a first-person communication. You can see a communication from a brand saying, take me home or eat me. And in general, this tactic is very popular because it creates very positive emotional connection to products. It enhances product liking. People are more prone to buy it. Some research shows that it uh, enhances attributions of brand personality. So People can perceive a brand as more competent, as more sincere, as more exciting, and directly translates those types of attributions directly translates from human-like characters. So overall, it's a very popular brand communication tactic. I'm curious, what was it that that led you to focus um, your recent research efforts on anthropomorphism? 
Was there anything in particular you had noticed or that kind of piqued your interest in this? Absolutely. That's a great question. I've honestly always been fascinated by the phenomena. But just to give you a little bit of background, um, I, um, I went to art school. So I have an art background. And um, I really like this idea of phenomena that an artist's work reflects his or her personality. And it always fascinated me. So when I begin my PhD program, one of the first articles that I got interested in were that consumers' choices also reflect who they are. They also reflect their personalities. And I began studying first as a brand personality is an effective brand strategy. It wasn't brand anthropomorphism yet, but extending those ideas and in combination with my interest in the concept of brand personality, I became very interested and very excited by the phenomena, phenomenon of attributed mind, emotions, the core definition of anthropomorphism, right? Attributed mind, emotions, conscious will to non-human entities. And given that marketers frequently rely on anthropomorphism as an important branding strategy, as I mentioned, for example, M&M brand characters, and at that time, very limited understanding of the phenomena. So um, the investigation of different aspects of humanizing brands became the center of my research focus. Now, this year, as, as hopefully the worst of the pandemic has eased at least somewhat, a new term has been introduced to the tourism lexicon, revenge travel. Um, I don't recall it popping up before this year. And that refers simply to people who've been cooped up like most of us for most of the past couple of years um, during the pandemic, finally taking the dream vacations they missed out on during the pandemic lockdowns and the aftermath. And I do think that provides a, a great context to talk about the, the most recent study you published with three of your colleagues, which looked at the benefits and risks of what you call destination anthropomorphism in tourism. So again, what is destination anthropomorphism specifically, and, and what are some examples of it in real life? In fact, destination is anthropomorphism. anthropomorphism is a term that my colleagues and I came up together, and we define destination anthropomorphism as attributing or endowing a destination with human-like characteristics, intentions, emotions, uh, so to say, mind of its own. Basically, um, it is making consumers or tourists think of a destination as a real human being, as alive, as having human-like traits. And uh, in fact, uh, this is not a new phenomenon. Advertising practitioners often strategically rely on the tactic of imbuing tourist destination, such as vacation spots or cities or countries or hotels with a particular persona. Right or communicating about the tourist destination as it were a human. And uh, some example, just to give you some example to put it in perspective, Bulgaria as a country is very frequently referred to as Mother Bulgaria or India or Egypt as Mother of the World. And destination advertising provides, in fact, many opportunities for marketers when a destination is anthropomorphized in the advertisement. And the general idea is to enhance its appeal to tourists. So uh, one of the prominent examples of destination anthropomorphism that uh, my colleagues and I discussed was the Australia's wildlife park, 
Australia's uh, Wildlife Park created a promotion with a Patrick, the wombat, that acts as an ambassador of the Wildlife Park. And it also became a local ce celebrity uh, and attracted even as a, other famous celebrities beginning since 2013. So another example of that uh, would be a Godzilla um, mascot that have been commonly used as a tourist ambassador to attract tourists to Tokyo. <laughs> um, some other examples are, in fact, uh, Japan is one of the countries that came up very frequently in uh, my discussion with my colleagues. Japanese region of Kumamoto Prefecture has used the anthropomorphized mascot Kumamon beginning in 2010. 10 to successfully promote tourists to this region. So we can see this is a very frequent communication tactic. Uh, and uh, as I already mentioned, it's called destination anthropomorphism. What were the, the main questions that you and your colleagues were looking to answer in undertaking this study? So we were looking at um, what kind of downstream outcomes destination anthropomorphism has in the marketplace. And uh, our initial discussion began with the idea that given positive aspects of anthropomorphism, we would expect to find that destination anthropomorphism increases, in fact, tourist desire to visit that destination. This was our, our initial point. This is where we began our research journey. Now, the study that you embarked on with your uh, colleagues, included hypothetical examples of destination anthropomorphism for participants in the study to react to. So if you could talk a little about the destinations you chose and why they were included, because the, they were included for very specific reasons to get at different questions you were looking at. Excellent question, Jack. So we studied, in fact, multiple destinations in our research. So we looked at um, different destinations in Japan. Um, we looked at Tokyo. We looked at Inazawa, Japan. We looked at uh, Hanoi, Vietnam. We looked, we looked at London, England, Sydney, Australia, and some of the local destinations such as Seward, Alaska in the United States. Um, so we were trying to utilize a variety of different destinations because as a uh, I can talk a little bit later about it. We were trying to uh, cover a variety, an entire range of different destinations that are close in terms of cultural distance and are further away from cultural distance, some familiar destination, less familiar destination, destinations from foreign cultures, destinations from local cultures. I mentioned we looked at also um, Alaska as a destination. So that was our main reasoning. And how did... Um... How did you show participants these different destinations? Um, it seemed that there were two different kinds of images and accompanying text, which was very important, of course, um, to, to kind of differentiate between the two approaches. We, as a team, as a research team, created a variety of different advertisements uh, with their images or most popular images within those specific tourist destinations. And uh, we separated our treatment groups into one that uh, saw anthropomorphized communication and the other group that didn't see anthropomorphized communication. 
There are different ways to induce anthropomorphism or perception of humanization in uh, advertisement communication, but one of the most frequently utilized method of doing that is to include a humanized character in the communication. So similar to branding uh, humanization, branding examples or advertisement examples, we also included a humanized character. For example, it was a humanized uh, most of our communication included humanize a person, especially the onset of our studies when we studied uh, Japan, uh, Tokyo, Nazawa, Hanoi, London and England, Sydney, Australia. But uh, later on, we also wanted to control for the similarity in um, images. Uh, so we also controlled uh, for the, how nationalist symbolic the humanized character looks like and we included just the, a reference to or at least a similarity to a human being without providing specific um, uh, culturally similar uh, humanized character. And in looking at the, you know, obviously we're, we're doing this by audio only so we, we can't show the um, uh, slides but I can probably include those in this when we uh, put the podcast online. Um, you know, one of them has the text, I am the city of Osaka, Japan, and there's a character with that. Come visit and explore my heritage. So that's what you're talking about in terms of the, the anthropomorphizing or humanizing the, the city for readers. That is correct. So we were trying to include their, um, or really facilitate consumer perception of a brand as human-like or destination, uh, branded destination as human-like. And uh, as I already mentioned, one way to do that is to include a humanized character, but to uh, really facilitate perception of the destination as a human-like, we also included first person, what we call a first person communication. So the destination comes alive by appealing to consumers, by really talking to a consumer, which is, again, a very popular communication tactic that is utilized across a variety of different um, academic articles and in the real world examples, talking to a customer or a tourist in this particular case from the first person language. And then just to, to follow up on that, the, uh, the same image from Osaka, Japan, also had another treatment with I guess it would be third-person text communication. This is the city of Osaka, Japan. Come visit and explore the city's heritage. So the the only difference really is I am and my heritage between those two. So as we talk about the main findings now, those were the things that people were reacting to. And I'm curious, how did they react to those two different treatments that they they were exposed to? It's actually very interesting uh, because I'd like to mention what we expected when we began this um, research, This uh, when we posed this research question. So at the beginning, as I already mentioned, we expected to find that destination anthropomorphies would in fact enhance tourist desires to visit the destination. But our findings were really fascinating and I would say even quite surprising. We found that anthropomorphizing destination from the same culture, and the example of that would be visiting a city in Alaska, United States, right? And we studied uh, participants in the United States. So um, anthropomorphizing destination from the same culture 
uh, would increase people's desire to visit destination. We found that their power was very consistent with our expectations. But what really surprised us, and then where we put most of our thinking uh, in trying to explain the findings, anthropomorphizing a culturally distant tourist destination, such as those that I mentioned, Japan or Vietnam, leads to, in fact, lower consumers or tourists' intention to travel to that destination. And this negative uh, destination anthropomorphism uh, effect disappears for destinations that are culturally close tourist destinations, such as London and England or Sydney, Australia. So what we found that, in fact, destination anthropomorphism does not have a universal positive effect. So in cultural distance, really impacts the way destination anthropomorphism works. So by cultural distance, we mean how similar the culture where people are going or how different the culture where people are going from the tourist, from a person's own culture. We actually based those predictions and we found answers in their intergroup context theory. So which basically suggests um, that people frequently feel very uncomfortable when interacting with members of different social groups and oftentimes even expect that the out-group member contact is likely to be disapproved by in-group members. So, for example, interactions with out-group members that are less dissimilar to an in-group, such as culturally close destination, they should reduce perceptions of risk associated with traveling to those destinations. And we, in fact, found that traveling to... London, England, or those are our stimuli, or Sydney, Australia, destination anthropomorphism didn't have any effect at all. So there was no negative effect or no positive effect. And this is our main findings. So again, based on the intergroup context theory, that traveling to culturally distant destinations from a person, from the tourist's uh, own culture, uh, would lead to really negative uh, outcomes, which was right. very surprising for us. So what are the key takeaways that those working in uh, the tourism industry should take away from this study? So provided that destination anthropomorphism is a very prevalent tactic in hospitality, in tourism, and travel industry, as we already discussed, our findings show that the use of anthropomorphism promoting certain destinations might be both an effective and detrimental strategy for destination branding. So most importantly, our work, uh, in fact, establishes that destination anthropomorphism could be an effective strategy for destinations within the same culture. For example, in promoting tourism in Alaska or United States national parks to American consumers, marketers are very strongly advised to incorporate anthropomorphic imagery and communications, for example, first-person communication. However, our findings reveal in contrast that advertisers should carefully design their destination promotions or advertisement messages and be really cognizant of cultural distance because cultural distance influences the effectiveness of their campaigns. For example, in designing communication to foreign tourists, advertisers should exercise caution prior to incorporating destination anthropomorphism strategies in their marketing communication. So what our findings also show that firms are also advised to assess the level of knowledge of their target destination that travelers and their target target market currently possess. If travelers' familiarity with the advertised destination is pretty low, 
then our work would caution the use of destination anthropomorphism as a communication tactic. Previous studies you've done have looked at other potential risks for companies that humanize their brands. Uh, one found that humanizing a product could lead some consumers to actually wind up viewing it as a rival. If you could talk a little bit about how that happens, what's going on there? So to answer that question, which is an excellent question, thank you for posing and thank you for bringing up that study. I'd like to mention that, in fact, past work on anthropomorphism shows that effect of anthropomorphism is context dependent. So the context or the situation uh, where anthropomorphism effect happened is really important. So in a series of research studies that uh, you mentioned, Jack, we studied the context of unique brands or products. So more specifically, those particular broad products or brands that consumers can use to express their identity to others, to express their individuality. And this is very important. This is a very important context. So our findings in that particular context suggest that the managers of uh, brands that are used by consumers to express uh, different uh, individuality or unique characteristics, they, those brands of those, uh, managers of those brands should really exercise caution when employing a brand anthropomorphism strategy. While brand anthropomorphism could be successful with certain consumer groups, for example, with assimilation goals, as past research suggests, it may really backfire with other consumers who seek uniqueness or distinctiveness because humanization means that consumers view a product as a real human being. And humanizing product means it is another unique human being. And people like to express their identity specifically with products, not with other human beings. And in that particular context where really people try to express who they are to others, humanizing those unique products and brands could really backfire. Yeah, that really is interesting because it's almost like the, in wanting to express our uniqueness and identity, if the product is really unique and has a very strong identity of its own as a humanized brand, then it, it's almost, you know, the, the thought process, I guess, is that people are thinking, well, this is actually conflicting with me. This is drawing more attention than I am, and I'm the one who wants to express my own individuality. Absolutely. It's almost similar to the idea that the product or the brand that is humanized, the unique product or brand, becomes mm -hmm. almost like a rival to a consumer, to a, comp to a competitor to a consumer's identity. So, and consumers uh, dislike products like that because they are the ones who really want to express their identity and they want to take credit for expressing their own identity. They don't want to give another human being entity this credit for expressing who they are. Now, there was another earlier study um, that we had talked about um, a few years ago that I found really fascinating because while humanizing a brand can create, um, as you were just talking about, really strong bonds between consumers and products, it also can cause an even stronger backlash if something goes wrong because it's humanized. So it's almost like there's someone to blame as opposed to just some 
faceless corporation or um, product. So what, what did you look at in that study and, and, and how did you come to that, that conclusion? Jack, that was actually one of my first studies done in the area of uh, brand anthropomorphism. What we showed in that study, that when a product fails, it doesn't perform based on how consumers expect it to perform, then anthropomorphizing a product makes consumers attribute greater responsibility to that product, to the product itself. And as such, they decrease their intentions to buy a product again in the future. That was our my main findings, that basically when something goes wrong, the product fails, doesn't perform based on consumers' expectation. Uh, consumers uh, attribute more responsibility for the product, and then it decreases their likelihood to purchase the product in the future. So that kind of leads us to, I think, what the bottom line question is, is, is what do companies and particularly their marketing and communications teams who are thinking about using an anthropomorphism strategy, uh, what should they know about the potential benefits and possible pitfalls? Overall, anthropomorphism is a greatly effective. It may enhance brand equity. It can enhance overall positive associations about the brand, create greater consumer liking. However, it is very important for marketers to understand that anthropomorphism effects are context-dependent. They are situation-dependent. As we may not always welcome other people in certain contexts, for example, when we feel very overcrowded, we want socially withdraw. Consumers may not always welcome humanized products in certain contexts as well. Thus, it is very important to take into account a context, a particular situation, understand it in detail, where anthropomorphism effects specifically take place. What is the uniqueness or characteristics of that context? Well, thank you so much for being with us on Illuminate today, Marina. Thank you very much, Jack. I appreciate that. Marina Puzakova is an editorial board member at Journal of Advertising and International Journal of Advertising, and in addition to those two publications, has published in such prestigious journals as the Journal of Marketing, the Journal of Consumer Research, International Journal of Research and Marketing, Journal of Business Research, and Journal of Marketing Theory and Practice. This podcast is brought to you by Illuminate, the Lehigh Business Blog. To hear more podcasts featuring Lehigh business thought leaders, please visit us at business.lehigh.edu slash news. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter, at Lehigh Business. This is Jack Croft, host of the Illuminate podcast. Thanks for listening.